Hello there, and welcome to our Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. My name is Richard Frankowitz, and I'm the Youth Director here at SFBC. This week, Pastor Emeritus Dave Lee shares the next message in our series entitled John's Gospel, That You May Have Life. Enjoy! Good morning. It's good to be here today, and thank you for the incredibly warm welcome that you've given Em and me here this morning. Uh, This is our home church. Uh, Even though, as uh, Pastor Rod said, I'm working with churches all around the province, um, this is our home church. I've got to tell you a little story. First of all, as Rod said, I'm working with a church in Surrey right now. But uh, this summer, there was a pastor, he needed a break really badly, so I was asked if I would mind going up and speaking on his behalf, taking a message in their church. It was in Logan Lake. So if you don't know where that is, just drive toward Kamloops on the Coquihalla, and instead of going to Lac Lejeune, uh, go the opposite direction, and you'll eventually get to Logan Lake. It's a little church, and it's an awesome church. They're so warm. When I arrived, I told them that my wife Em was along, but she'd have to stay outside because we brought her dog, and they said, nope, that's not going to happen. And it's a small church, you know, the, the back isn't very far from the front, and they had double doors at the back that you pop them open and you're outside. So they popped open the back doors and put a chair there. And that's where Em sat with our dog. It's our first time our, ever, our dog has attended church. <laughs> and I, I made that point. I said, you know, this is the first Sunday our dog's been able to be at church. And someone yelled out, it's about time. <laughs> and then someone else said, is your dog saved? I don't know how much the dog got out of the service, but I know last Sun- or two Sundays ago, our dog was in a kennel in an office right next to the auditorium, and it was, she was so quiet until I got up to speak, and as soon as I spoke, I think she heard my voice and she started howling. <laughs> so I actually had to go out there and calm our dog down. Thanks, Rod, for letting me uh, share here this morning. And what I want to do is uh, introduce you to a good friend of mine. He won't appear in person, so I'm going to have to tell you about him. But I'm going to tell you a bit of his bio and see if you can guess who he is. First, the birth of this man was prophesied by angels. And second, Jesus said that he is the greatest man who ever lived. Okay, who who am I referring to? That's correct. Now listen to what an angel said in a prophetic message uh, to the parents of John the Baptist before he was born. He will be great in the sight of the Lord. And then Jesus said, among those born of women, there is not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. That's Matthew chapter 11, verse 11. So if you ever want to know who God views as the greatest of the greats, here he is. Yet I'm certain that he would never make the cover of Time magazine as person of the year if he lived today. And here's the reason why. If you added up all of his achievements, using only human standards that we use to determine success, that is the stuff that can be measured, and we measure everything, don't we? I mean, we measure anything that can be measured, we measure. Uh, just look at the stats that they have for hockey players right now. I mean, they, me- they measure down to the minute detail to determine the success of a player. We measure anything that can be measured. Now, if you take that 
kind of a standard, things that can be measured and applied to John the Baptist, you would say he was not a huge success. In fact, as we're going to see this morning, he was overseeing a diminishing ministry. It wasn't growing, it wasn't thriving, it wasn't the kind of destination ministry where pastors and church leaders come from all over the world to investigate, to learn how it's done. Like I said, if you could just go by the stuff that can be measured, he did not oversee a mega ministry, but rather a shrinking ministry. Even so, in God's estimation, surely the estimation that counts the most, he is the greatest of the greats. Here's why he became one of my good friends. I became a pastor in my 20s. It was a little church in Ottawa, less than 50 people. But what a huge responsibility for me as a 24-year-old, especially a 24-year-old still going to seminary. I didn't have a clue what I was doing. All I knew is that I really wanted to serve God, and I wanted to serve God well, but I didn't have a clue what I was doing. Here's an experience I had at our first church board meeting in Ottawa. Here I am with zero experience, showing up to my first meeting, waiting for them to tell me what's going on. When one of the deacons turned to me in absolute sincerity, said to me, David, we're so glad you're here. We've been waiting for you to arrive. We don't know anything about how to organize a church. What do we need to do? <laughs> and they all looked at me with this eager expectation, and that's when it forcefully struck me. I don't know. I don't know anything about organizing or managing or running a church. It was a very uncomfortable moment. I remember thinking, how do I break it to these poor people that their new pastor is an incompetent fraud? <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing. I thought I'd be preaching the Bible and caring for people and not leading a church. And, and it's in those early days as an inexperienced, insecure pastor that John the Baptist became a good friend. Now let's jump ahead eight years from that point. And as a 32-year-old, I became the pastor of a larger church in Duncan, the senior pastor. And again, I just felt overwhelmed with the responsibility. So I wrote a prayer, and it's a prayer that I've prayed many times since then, and one I've shared with you. Here it is. Lord, may I be centered in you and conscious of you so that I might serve you with courage and confidence and conviction. And it's alliterated. Uh, that's one thing I knew how to do. I knew how to alliterate, because that's a basic skill for preachers, right? Lord, may I be centered in you and conscious of you so that I might serve you with courage and confidence and conviction. And you know what? That desire to serve has never left me. And I still pray like that because I still want to serve God well. So here I am, if we go back to Ottawa, as a 24-year-old pastor of this tiny church with this hunger and thirst to serve God well, and I wisely turned to Scripture for guidance. One of the main biblical characters who inspired me was John the Baptist. After all, if he's the greatest of the greats, I've got a lot to learn from him. So I asked as I meditated on his life, what is it that made him great? And how can I take, what can I take away from this man of God so that I can be a better follower and servant of Christ? 
And here are some of the things that I learned that I want to share with you today. But first, two small details. One, John the Baptist is not the founder of the Baptist church, okay? We need to be clear on that. He's called the Baptist because he baptized people, so he's not the founder of our denomination. And number two, John the Baptist, who we will now simply call John, did not write the Gospel of John. That was a different John. So we're going to turn to the Gospel of John, written by a different John, to learn about John this morning. John chapter 1, verse 19 is where we're going to begin. John 1, 19. I'll be reading. Uh, the text will be in front of you, but you can also find it in your own Bible, whether it's on your phone or if you bought a, brought a paper edition. Here it is. John chapter 1, verse 19. Now, this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. They asked him then, who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Finally, they said, who are you? I mean, give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you have to say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness, make straight the way for the Lord. Now the Pharisees who had been sent questioned him, why then do you baptize if you are not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptize with water, John replied, but among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. This all happened at Bethany, on the other side of the Jordan, where John was baptizing. Okay, here's the scene. A delegation of dignitaries comes to him down at the Jordan River. They're uncertain about who this fellow is. They have no idea. Who are you, they demand. This question undoubtedly arose because of the unusual nature of John's ministry. He was a, well, almost a wild man, <laughs> an unconventional preacher, to say the least. I mean, consider the following. First, he preached in the desert. Uh, you can see a lot of this information in Matthew chapter 3. In Matthew 3, verse 1, it says, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the desert of Judea. He didn't preach in the town or the synagogue where normal people preached. I mean, he was a desert preacher. Second, to make this unusual picture more unusual, Matthew describes his attire and diet. Matthew chapter 3, verse 4. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist, whose food was locust and wild honey. Don't assume that this is normal, even for that day. One certainly gets this vivid picture of this unconventional desert preacher with an unconventional wardrobe and menu. Third, he is creating quite a stir. Matthew chapter 3, 5 and 6. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. I mean, this guy's having an impact. People are thronging to hear him, and his reputation is growing, and his following is increasing. 
And more than that, he said outrageous things about the spiritual leaders of his day. Matthew 3, verse 7. When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Clearly, he was not one of them. He didn't serve in the temple or the synagogue. He hadn't been properly examined or credentialed or ordained or whatever they did back then. He just set himself up as a preacher in the desert and started baptizing people. By what authority did he call people to repentance? That's what they want to know. So you can see why those in the religious establishment back in Jerusalem are asking, who is this guy who set up shop in the desert as a preacher, dressed like a wild man, baptizing people and saying rude things about the spiritual leaders in our community? Who are you, they demand. It appears that their first question was, are you the Christ or the Messiah? Now I'm assuming that, even though it's not recorded in the text, based upon John's vehement denial, I am not the Christ. So, let's get this straight, he says, I'm not the Messiah that everyone's looking for. Okay, then, are you Elijah? Okay, hold on, what kind of a question is that? Elijah's been dead for 900 years. Why would they ever ask you, him, are you the Old Testament prophet Elijah who's been dead almost 900 years? Uh, but there's actually a good reason for that. This is rooted in an Old Testament prophecy recorded in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, that Elijah would one day return, ushering in the judgment of God. John was so similar to Elijah, the prophet in character, appearance, and message, that maybe he's the fulfillment of that prophecy. His response to them is, I'm not Elijah. Are you the prophet? Perhaps they thought that he's the Moses-like prophet who would speak for God that's referenced in Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. Again, he says, I am not. When John denied being the Christ, Elijah, or the prophet, they'd run out of categories. So they asked him again, exactly who are you? Give us an answer. We need to fill out a report. Listen now to John's answer. This gives us insight into the greatness of this man. John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. Notice who he quotes. He's quoting one of the great prophets of the Old Testament, one of the great prophets of Israel. And he describes himself as a voice. A voice that's all I am, nothing more than a voice. I'm a voice calling out in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. And then he has this, I baptize with water, he said, he replied, but among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He says, I'm nothing, I'm I'm nothing more than a voice, but one is among us right now whose sandals I am not even worthy to untie. You see, we see the greatness of John in the grand scheme of things, do we not? He's part of a large plan. 
Through him, God's sovereign purposes are, are unfolding, a great man fulfilling a great purpose. He doesn't call himself a voice without reason. Uh, when he describes himself as a voice, he's quoting that Old Testament prophet Isaiah. Uh, listen to what Isaiah says if you look back in the text. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. That's Isaiah 40, verse 3. And that's the text he's quoting. That voice, foreseen by Isaiah the prophet, that's John's voice. This places John right in the middle of God's great plan to redeem the world. He is the herald coming ahead of the king, shouting, prepare the way for the Lord himself. You've got to think about that kind of an image, you know, where a herald comes with a trumpet player and a banner and, and, and prepares people for the coming of a king or a queen, and the trumpet blasts a flourish, and the, and the herald announces that this royal person is about to arrive. Hear ye, hear ye. I know that's not a very realistic uh, image of John, because he's in the wilderness, dressed like a wild man without a trumpet or a herald, uh, a banner, but, but it gives you an idea of his role. He's a voice in the wilderness declaring the arrival of the Lord himself. Then when Jesus does make his appearance, here's what happens. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The one he is heralding has arrived. The Lord is here. Here is Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is one of the great prophetic images of the the Old Testament. The image of the Lamb finds repeated mention throughout the story of Israel. Here's some examples. There's the Lamb provided by God to be sacrificed by Abraham in place of his son Isaac. There's the sacrificial lamb used in the sacrifices of the, of the temple. There's a Passover lamb eaten in the Passover feast. There's a sheep led to be slaughtered for the sins of the people in Isaiah 53. Now, maybe some of these images aren't all that familiar to you. But they were familiar to the people in John's day. So when John says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, they knew exactly what he meant. This is their great hope. And he's our great hope too. He takes away all our sin. Take all of those verses that were on the screen during our communion today. You were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And this morning we make that same declaration. Look to Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world your sin and mine.
When we confess our sin and when we receive Christ into our lives by faith, his work done on that cross is applied to us and our sins are forgiven. That's what this means. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of you and of me. In this, we see the greatness of John reflected in the greatness of his calling and his assignment. He is a voice preparing the way for the Lord himself, the Savior of the world, a great man with a great task. And his message still goes out today, and it goes out right here in this auditorium. We also see his greatness reflected in his character. Not everyone could handle a, a calling or an assignment like this, don't you think? I mean, it would take a, a person of exemplary character. What we see in John is a man of enormous significance in the kingdom. He's prophesied in the Old Testament. His birth is announced by angels. Not everyone could handle this. I mean, because arrogance and pride of position has a way of creeping in, distorting everything, doesn't it? Uh, there's a proverb. Power corrupts. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. This is not the case with John. John is so totally surrendered to God, so focused entirely on Christ, that he retains humility and surrender and devotion. He said, I don't even deserve to undo the sandals of he who comes. A number of years back, I attended the grad of our daughter-in-law, Kareen, from the seminary in Langley, and it just so happened that she and Rod graduated in the same graduation class with their master's degree, so we were there to celebrate two people graduating. Uh, our daughter-in-law is Kareen, and um, she and our son Rob are missionaries in Italy, supported by our church. As part of the grad, we sang an old song that I had sung many times before. But for some reason, it resonated with me like never before. Um, we didn't even sing it very well, you know. We, actually, we, we sang it miserably. Uh, but, I, but I felt this kind of lump in my throat as we sang, because I meant every word. So here's the synopsis, okay? Here's a whole song in eight lines or seven lines, okay? And some of you will recognize this song, even in the mini form. Jesus, all for Jesus, all I am and ever hope to be, all my ambitions, hopes, and plans, I surrender these into your hands, for it's only in your will that I am set free. Jesus, all for Jesus, all I am and have and ever hope to be. That John understood. He lived all out for Jesus, not for himself, not for any other. He lived for Jesus. John isn't a great man simply because he holds an important office. His greatness isn't defined by the greatness of his task. One could say that John is a man who brings greatness to the task, greatness in the shape of a Christ-centered life. Let's take an example of how completely surrendered he is to the plan of God. Now we're going to switch now to John chapter 3, beginning in verse 22. John has a problem. His congregation is shrinking. 
You know, there's almost nothing worse than pastoring a shrinking congregation. Leading a diminishing congregation is like being the coach of a, of a team on a mega losing streak. You see, good numbers, that's something that we as North American achievers understand. We get it. We like to measure things. We like to have benchmarks for success. If a church is growing, that reassures us all is well. Must indicate that we're on the right track, right? But what about diminishing numbers? How do you read that? The same is true for our professional and personal lives, is it not? I mean, when things are going well, like say in business or your personal wealth or your professional and academic achievement, we think, I must be in tune with God. I must be doing God's work in God's way. We naturally associate increase and success with God's blessing. And when things are going well, we take joy in that. And when things are not going so well, we fear the opposite. Several of John's closest associates come to John to voice their concern. They came to John and said, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, you know the one we're talking about, the one you said is the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Look, he's baptizing and everyone is going to him. Like, John, he's stealing our sheep. Now listen to John's response, and I love this. And remember, this is the voice of the greatest of the greats. To this, John replied, a, a person can receive only what is given them from heaven. Okay, just sort of absorb that one for a moment. A person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and is now complete. He must become greater, I must become less. Now those eight words changed my life. He must become greater, I must become less. Or as an older translation puts it, he must increase, I must decrease. And with these words, John became a good friend. Okay, like everyone else, and I should actually qualify it like almost everyone else, I, too, get caught up in the success syndrome, where everything that can be measured is measured. Offering, attendance, baptisms, buildings built, ministries launched. At the best of times, this can seriously harm our spiritual well-being. In pandemic times, this is a death trap. If you want to poison your mind with self-recrimination, then base your spiritual well-being on what can be measured in today's church. Almost every pastor I've spoken to in recent months reports decreases in attendance, offering, and involvement since the start of the pandemic. And in some cases, it's a sharp decline. Here's why John the Baptist became one of my best friends. Because I needed to learn what he knew all along. A person can receive only what is given them from heaven. And he must increase, I must decrease. 
I saw and continued to see in John what I want for myself. What I see in him is all-out dedication to God's will and God's calling in Christ. I see in him that I have a small little wee part to play in fulfilling God's purposes. And I see in him humility to embrace that calling and exalt Christ alone. That kind of dedication, that kind of awareness, and that kind of humility is truly liberating. I can tell you that from personal experience. It gets like a monkey off your back, as they say. It's like the song said, for it's only in your will that I'm free. When I stop obsessing over my own success and begin thinking more about Christ and his kingdom and his purposes and his glory, that's liberating. I hope John will become one of your best friends today, too. See, what we learn from John are two essential things. One, we learn who Jesus is, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the Lamb of God who takes away your sin and mine when in faith we call out to him. And the second thing that we learn from John is about the kind of success that's not dependent upon our own achievements. You know, the trophies, citations, degrees, wealth, position, power that determines success in our worldly sense. But rather, a kind of success that arises out of simply wanting what God wants in our lives and striving all out for that. Let's pray together. I pray, Father, that we would hear your voice as you seek to break through the barriers that we put up to teach us what it means to be a great person. First, a person who knows you, who knows the work of the Lamb of God, and then a person who pursues you, pursues the work of the Lamb of God. And may we become those people in the name of Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to our Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about our church, please check out sardisfellowship.com. Have a great day, and God bless.